IP is best not to be treated as an isolated issue, but in conjunction with other aspects such as market positioning, finance strategies, access to resources, and things like supply and distribution related assets. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Welcome to episode five of the second season. This week, we're celebrating the World Intellectual Property Day. And what better way to celebrate than talking and learning about IP? On this episode, we're going to talk about design entrepreneurs and the different ways they can protect their work. Let's welcome our guest. My name is Matthias Hillner. I live in Germany. Um, I emigrated to, the, to, to London in the United Kingdom in 1999 and um, to Singapore in 2015. And, and that's where I am now. I'm living and working here in Singapore. I'm currently at the helm of GSA Singapore, which is a satellite campus owned by the Glasgow School of Art in Scotland. So I'm a designer and a design researcher and a design teacher committed to enhancing innovation capacities within the creative industries. Germany, the UK, and Singapore. Very fascinating. Can you tell us more details about your career? I'm looking back at a sort of um, 30 years of a quite long and complex journey. But um, again, to sum it up, I moved from visual communication to service design and subsequently to innovation. Um, I dedicated a large portion of my time to connecting design education and design industry practices with innovation and design entrepreneurship. Um, completed a number of undergraduate degrees, and in addition to those, I hold three postgraduate degrees from the Royal College Park in London. And this is where I completed a PhD focusing on intellectual property and innovation management two years ago that paved the way to the book and my current activities, which have to do with um, innovation management and, and, and start startups. Your book is titled Intellectual Property, Design, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. What yeah. inspired you to write it? Uh, how you came up with the idea or is something that's just gradually uh, happened? I mean, there is a gradual element to it, um, a kind of growing momentum. So for one, as I've worked in advertising photography and some of my former bosses 25 plus years ago, they were quite inventive people. Um, so they um, developed and printed their own lighting systems and thus um, sort of achieved a considerable degree of success back in the 1990s in Germany in the field of um, advertising photography. More recently, um, I launched my own design consultancy in 2005 following a successful business development pitch um, to the National Endowment of Science, Technology and the Arts in the UK. So that's an institution called Nesta, and they provided um, business development funding um, in response to a competitive pitch. Um, this was followed in 2009 by a multidisciplinary R&D project, which I led over a period of two or three years. And um, it was interesting because um, it led to observations within the Royal College of, College of Art, where I um, studied and worked periodically. And I observed that business development grants were typically contingent on pending patents. So the question that this led to, this observation, was why were patents as so significant for scalable business ideas and what other protective measures um, can creative entrepreneurs put in place in addition or in, in, instead of patents. So the Royal College of Art collaborated from 2007 to 2011 with Imperial College 
in London to shape a cross-disciplinary incubator called Design London. And that was, again, um, supported financially by Nesta. And I interviewed many of the entrepreneurs who were involved in that incubator and subsequently other designer entrepreneurs who pursued their endeavors independent of incubation systems. And a selection of these case studies are featured in the book, including Rob Law's Trunky Drive on Travel Case, which was designed for kids, um, Mandy Haberman's Anyway Up Cup for um, babies. So that's a baby cup that doesn't spill any liquids um, due to a valve system. And then there were some enterprising projects that I've covered by Sebastian Conran, um, the son of Sir Terence Conran. So the insights and recommendations made in the book are all grounded in real-life research. And I compiled it in the, in the, in the course of the years, eight to 10 years, um, carrying out periodic interviews with those diverse designer entrepreneurs. And But it, I have to say that it became quite quickly apparent that IP is best not to be treated as an isolated issue, but in conjunction with other aspects such as market positioning, finance strategies, access to resources, and things like supply and distribution related assets. So these different aspects, they are all connected and the strategies ought to be developed in alignment because only that allows us to, to avoid conflicting and compromising circumstances. And the second point that became evident in the course of the research was that IP and other business um, attributes are not static, as it is often assumed. Um, they evolve and, and change gradually over time. So, for instance, the risk of IP infringement, um, that is surprisingly low to begin with in the early stages of startup until proof of market is established. But then the risk can increase quite dramatically and quite quickly. And um, the other thing that we found out is that non-disclosure non agreements, for instance, they don't tend to suffice as a protection mechanism. Um, so this led to the insight that entrepreneurs need to build their defenses in due time prior to a potential threats arising. And this is why they need to, to apply foresight and need to make, they need to make informed decisions in regards to their um, development strategies. IP is not likely to be infringed during the first stages of the endeavor. So can you explain to us what is proof of market? Yes. So what, what happened is um, there's a number of examples. Um, the longitudinal studies that I've carried out, they were obviously um, based around established products. And what um, became apparent is that only when sales are introduced successfully in relation to a particular product, um, will competitors enter the scene. So Mandy Haberman, for instance, has discussed her, um, her prototypes with large incumbents in the industry. And um, she had conversations with almost uh, 50 or so um, potential strategic partners, and none of them um, responded positively. So she pursued her, um, her route to market independently. And, and in exchange with her, in, in collaboration with a marketing agency, and she managed to get her foot in the door and, and land her um, non-spill baby bottle on the shelves of supermarkets. And once they started selling successfully in sizable numbers, this is when some of the um, companies she had previously spoken to um, started putting out um, competing products. And the reason why the competitors wouldn't imitate that novelty right away is because they need to invest. They need to invest in tooling, production. They need to invest in distribution and marketing, for instance. And they wouldn't be ready to do that 
unless they can be confident that sales will be successful. Yeah, makes sense. So they wait uh, to see if the product is a success or no, or if it's worth the investment. And then instead of trying to get a license, they will go around and create a competing product by themselves. Yeah, that appeared to be more uh, attractive, <laughs> let's say in a nice way. <laughs> yeah. And can uh, moving on to more in depth in your book, um, can you explain to us in plain terms, what is design innovation and what is a design entrepreneur? So, okay. So um, first of all, thinking about innovation. So these are two terms that are combined. Um, one of the things that I have to say also as a designer educator working with other academics teaching design, um, I have to say that innovation is often confused with creativity and creating novel design solutions, but there is much more to it. Creative decision-making is, in my view, a little more than a catalyst that allows for innovation opportunities to come to the fore. There are understandably different paradigms surrounding innovation, but the most commonly shared concept is that innovation happens when creative achievements are applied and implemented and taken to market successfully. In other words, the argument is that um, innovation does not end with inventive step. And quite on the contrary, one could argue that the latter marks only the starting point of an innovation process. Um, entrepreneurial activities, um, a business enterprise um, is traditionally seen as a commercial initiative that, that generates high yield. In other words, it, it has the capacity to pave the way towards disproportionately large financial gains generated through um, a, a business initiative. So an example would be James Dyson, for, for instance, who incepted a new technology for a backless vacuum cleaner and then successfully um, commercialized this technology, um, which led to a multinational corporation. Um, so this journey of a designer entrepreneur can typically be quite bumpy. And uh, the ambition behind authoring the book is to um, try to shed some light into how the success prospects of design entrepreneurial activities can be enhanced and how that, um, that journey can be smoothened a little bit. And so my book treats the term um, designer entrepreneur in line with Nede Hovanesian's definition as the person or the team who operate at the intersection of creative design practices and entrepreneurship. So it's basically an individual designer or a design team using inventive thinking, not only to generate novel design solutions, but also to generating businesses with high growth potential around those design propositions. Which are the four categories of design businesses and which IP strategy is best for them? So, well, I have to say this, um, you're referring to the um, design businesses, uh, the, the, this um, framework um, that's been introduced by the big innovation center in the UK, right? Um, yes. And I have to say that I don't perceive those um, categories as universal. I think there are, there are a conceptual framework for the basis of orientation, and it has to be understood um, how they came about it. So the UK Intellectual Property Office commissioned the Big Innovation Center, which is a UK-based research organization to investigate which design industry stakeholders or industry stakeholders in general might benefit from changes in the UK design Right, design right legislation. So the design right is a law that protects the visual appearance of a, of a three-dimensional product. 
and um, they, there were um, considerations to change the, um, the legal articulation. And these changes were actually introduced in 2015-2016. In the run-up to these um, amendments, um, a number of studies were carried out, including my own um, design right infringement survey. So according to the Big Innovation Center, who um, carried out the study that led to the report that was published in 2012, traditional design consultancy business creates bespoke design solutions for individual customers. That's the conventional way of practicing design. And because these design solutions aren't transferable, these businesses generally um, are very difficult to upscale. So they receive a commission and they respond to that commission by developing a individual design solution that is suitable for that one commissioner, that client or theirs. The designer maker, um, as they call it, um, so the designer that develops independent um, solutions without a commission, um, often they take um, the design solutions to market either directly or via distributors. And that means that they benefit directly from the sales revenues that are generated through those products. So um, their gains are proportionate to the number of sales, which isn't the case if they are commissioned by a third party who will um, receive an exclusive license for the design or um, even um, purchase the intellectual property that is attached to the design solution. So in this case, for the designer maker, um, the design right is of great significance, um, protects their, um, th their access to the design solution, and they can also litigate um, imitations and infringements. So James Dyson would be an example here. And there are um, a number of cases out there, Dyson versus Bax, for instance, in regards to the bag as vacuum cleaner. But then there are other players in that framework. So you have... First of all, the traditional design consultancy will receive a commission, um, and then you've got the designer maker who develop their own design solutions independently and take them to market. And then you have, um, according to the um, Big Innovation Center, the design aggregator as a stakeholder, and they tend to acquire design rights through either license or purchase, as it were, capitalize on the creative achievements of others, but then pay out royalties or um, one-off purchase fees for the IP that is attached to a design solution. And last but not least, you have what they term as global monoservices businesses. These are businesses that operate internationally as multinational corporations. And um, the difficulty with, those, with this sort of um, splitting the design or the creative practices into these four categories is that the terms are a little bit confusing. They're not very common necessarily. And the distinction between the different industry practices in, in relation to the proprietary use of design rights or product languages um, was interesting and useful to, stay, to, to sketch out a stakeholder system can be a little bit uh, misleading because in, real, in reality, the situation is typically more complex. And the distinctions between those two, uh, those four categories is a lot harder to make in practice. I have to say that also the original report acknowledges that there are often mixed business models at play. Um, so individual um, game players in that uh, framework, they operate in different ways. And, and, and Sebastian Conner is a typical example here because he's got a consultancy business. And on the back of that consultancy business, he also has independent initiatives, which are discussed in the book to great length and in good detail. There are possibilities to um, maneuver between those different categories for the creative practitioners. One of the things that's important to recognize is that design entrepreneurship appears to be on the rise. And this is why 
the significance of IP um, appears to be growing, um, connects with these different practices. And so the strategic use of IP, um, which may, may involve not just design right registration, but also other defensive measures such as um, defense publications or sharing of IP or secrecy, those um, measures um, tend to become very significant for um, startups in particular. But at the same time, um, I think it's very important to recognize that other um, development factors um, are also important. And these different factors such as market positioning, access to resources, um, what David T's um, terms as complementary assets, they're interdependent and they affect each other. Yes. Um, what is a defense publication? Can you explain it with that example? So a defense publication, um, okay, it's a very interesting question that you asked that in the science um, context, a defense publication could be a paper that is being published. And what it does is it shares that knowledge. It, it sets a precedent. So anybody else who would like to protect that exclusively cannot do that because it's already in the public domain. So let's say for argument's sake, if you take the baddest vacuum cleaner, if James Dyson had publicized that prior to filing a patent, then nobody could subsequently prevent him from making use of this new technology. But what the defense publication doesn't do is um, to secure exclusivity for the person who publishes because it's not protected through a patent or any other form of IP. The reason why this is quite interesting and some of the case studies that um, the book um, discusses are found in the academic sector and typically design programs, for instance, have degree shows. When a product is presented um, as part of a degree show, that will be a public display. And that's actually happened in conjunction with one of the case studies in the Trunky Travel case. Rob Law incepted this little product, um, which is designed for kids so they can have uh, their own little um, travel case and they can sit on, so sit on it and the parents can drag them through the airport, for instance. He designed that as a graduating student and it was presented as part of a degree show. Then several years later, he registered a design right um, for an advanced version of this travel case. There was a, an infringing, a supposedly infringing product. It was found not to be infringing after all, but it was a very similar product. It was found that the president of this registered design um, by Rob Law, um, the president which was set through the degree show um, where he first featured his product, that sort of um, compromised a little bit the level of protection that he could enjoy for his final design because prior art was created through the exhibition of the product in the first instance and subsequently a variation of that design was published. Now, to the benefit of Rob Law, the displays or the publication, or the, the images that were shown of the degree of, of the student project were all very small scale, blurry. They weren't very distinct. So that came to his rescue. It was perceived that this prior art had a minimal impact on the robustness of the design right. But when it comes to technology innovations, for instance, if that is being exhibited prior to filing the patent, um, then that would invalidate the patent. So there's another example in the book about a music instrument, the so-called Seaboard, that was um, invented by one of the um, Royal College students at the time. 
And it was made sure that before the show opened, the patent, the first patent had been put on file. And um, subsequently, the design right was also registered. Um, they made use of a one-year grace period, but um, there were not one more day was wasted to file that and to register the design in order to make sure that the novelties in conjunction with that design product were protected to the best of the capacity. Does that answer the question a little bit? Yes, perfectly. So with this strategy, what you do is you affect the prior art. So no one else could claim a patent in a specific a design patent on that innovation. And then you make use of the grace period to file your own patent. Um, you have to be very careful there. The, the so-called grace period, that really depends on the legislation. So some countries allow for a certain grace period. So in the UK at the time, it was one year. So you could show a product and register a design right within a year, but not every um, territory allows for that. So I'm not quite sure what um, what applies to the, uh, the, the US design patent, which is somewhat an equivalent to the design right. Um, in particular, the grace period doesn't apply to utility patents. So if you want to protect the functionality of an innovation, then you have to do that prior to sharing the design, the, the solution. For instance, um, what is a good example where the technology solution, the functionality of, a, of an invention is visually obvious, I would refrain from sharing visuals of that um, that describe the functionality of a product um, prior to filing the patent because the prior art would invalidate the patent. And so that can be a real problem. And what I found out through a survey carried out in the UK is that a lot of designers don't know um, that um, prior art can invalidate a design right, which protects the visual aspect of a design solution. So they start trading and selling a design and then years later try to protect that through, um, through a design right and, and competitors can easily question, um, compete with that design and in court invalidate it based on prior art that is actually created by that um, inventor or by that um, designer who develops that new design solution. So it's really important that um, creatives inform themselves and apply a um, foresightful approach to strategizing their IP um, rollout. Defense publications are typically um, deployed by larger entities in order to secure freedom, what we call freedom to operate. So nobody can file a patent and then say, um, and, and secure exclusivity. And um, so these are um, measures so um, publication, defense publications and patents, utility patents in particular, are typically not easy to combine unless they apply to different aspects of the innovation. So you can have different, what I call inventive steps that are connected with a design solution and they can be protected through different measures. And that by tendency um, builds very strong protective IP strategies to use different means of protection applied to different components or elements of the design proposition and to, to use these in combination. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Looking to the patents uh, a little closer, do you consider them essential for a design entrepreneur to succeed or 
it's it's always a matter of what exactly is the innovation and is it worth to go through the patent process? It, it's really the latter. Um, there are um, so one of the things that I would like to point out. There are currently um, new paradigms in conjunction with design, um, be it systems design, experience design, service design. These novelties, these design that are not really physical, they are notoriously difficult to protect through patents. So um, patents are actually a very archetypical um, way to protect design solutions. They're really connected with um, the physical sphere or with digital solutions at best. Patents did seem essential for the design entrepreneurs that I initially interviewed who were part of the Design London Incubator, um, but that really had to do with the setup of this initiative. By no means um, suggest, should suggest that patents are essential in general. There are really many other factors involved to determine the success prospects of an initiative. So, for instance, entrepreneurs need to carve out a route to market, defend their market position, um, perhaps increase their market penetration over time. And this is not necessarily contingent to patents. So patents can be a contributing factor to these processes, um, but on their own, they are barely sufficient. So this was a kind of myth that I felt needed dismantling. I think it's really important to note that intellectual property and tacit knowledge are important, no doubt. They both can be protected in a number of ways. Um, and we've touched on some of them, such as secrecy, for instance, or even um, protective sharing of IP um, or strategic sharing of IP. Other factors um, that need to be taken into consideration are no less important. And it's really important in, in my view that the relationship between these different development factors are understood. So how does the final strategy depend on the IP strategy and vice versa? What is really important for the successful pursuit of a, a creative startup is the effective alignment of diverse strategies, such as the route to market, the market positioning, finance, supply strategies, distribution, etc. I think it was a year and a half ago, Darren Tang, the newly appointed director general, of the World Intellectual Property Organization spoke in Singapore, and he um, emphasized that we should not treat intellectual property and other intangible assets in silos. And it's also important in regards to that we've touched a little bit on the timings um, in regards to the patent application. It's really important to understand, you know, the proximity to market, for instance, because if a patent is filed too early where no sales are generated, then actually the patent doesn't generate any value um, for the patent owner. Like if the patent is filed too, too late, um, considering that the lifespan of a, of a patent is not infinite, there is a chance other competitors might file in the meantime, and that can also prove compromising to the exclusivity that is provided through a patent. But it's very important to take into consideration the time aspect when it comes to patent filing, fundraising, etc. Yeah, it makes sense. It's not to look at the patent as the reason or to look at the patent as the ultimate goal. It's about thinking about your innovation and how the market will react to it and then decide which intellectual property is better suited for you and for your market. The value that a patent can generate, it doesn't hold any value per se, but it is really depending on the, the, the market the scale. Um, the market value, the potential market penetration, 
and the lifespan of a product. So um, we are living in a in a in an age of acceleration. So there are a lot of products that, or a lot of um, technologies, if you like, that have a very limited lifespan. Um, by the time a patent will be examined and approved of, although that's also getting a little bit fast, but we are still looking at you know a year and a half minimum, typically two to three years. Um, often a, a technology is obsolete by then and follow-up patents are, are, are then needed in order to harness the advancement in relation to the technology. Yeah, it, it's, it really needs to be looked at in context and also looking at the dynamics that are at play within a particular market environment. How is the dominant design paradigm related to IP? And first of all, please do define dominant design. Yeah, so the dominant design paradigm, that's a term that was coined by Professor David Tease from the Haas School of Business at the University of California. To sum it up, the design takes prominence within a market. The, the, the science, total science of an emerging and dominant design paradigm is where the surrounding stakeholders, the suppliers and distributors would align their value propositions to their dominant design. Um, so it could be, for instance, you know, Apple launching iTunes um, or even earlier, maybe Apple entering the mobile phone market. This is where we see a shift in the market dynamics um, where one key player acquires a dominant position within that market environment. And IP can sometimes help pave the way towards a dominant design paradigm or also towards a dominant product language. So the book distinguishes between the functional aspects, typically about technologies. The dominant design paradigm is a new technology solution that takes uh, priority over, over competing um, solutions. Uh, a dominant product language proposed by um, Berganti and Delara um, that um, that, that relates to the visual appearance of a product that can also be taking precedence over and competing solutions. According to T's exclusive IP can help the strategic positioning of a firm within a market environment and, and therefore it can increase a company's competitive advantage over rival firms. Um, to rely on IP exclusively, however, is hardly ever sufficient. And, and that has to do with the, the relative ease at which um, certain um, IP can be circumvented um, by competitors. Um, and this is why, in my view, um, IP always needs to be deployed in line with other business development factors. The other thing that I think is very important, and so one of the things that um, has been observed is that it's very difficult to predict the dominant, dominant design. Typically, it manifests itself in retrospect. So once the dominant design has established then one can reverse engineer the journey. It's very difficult to predict this in, in the initial phase. So the time factor is, is, is really important. Dominant designs um, evolve over time and the product lifespans are more or less limited. So the value of IP diminishes over time. So depending on how long a product can sustain dominance in the market, and then you have a reiterative innovation which is also where um, competitors can enter the scene. Obviously, IP also isn't patent expires after a certain period of time, depending on the, on the product itself and the market environment. A, a patent cannot be relied on um, indefinitely. What, what happens if a patent, for instance, helps, to, helps an inventor to establish a, a dominant design paradigm, then other 
um, design and other business development factors can be um, brought into play in order to sustain the market prominence and market dominance. Um, so that can have to do with exclusive contracts, with aligning supply and distribution channels, capturing, dominating the value chain through either integra integrating um, supply elements and distribution um, channels or through securing exclusive contracts with key players. So, but that's when an in, inventive firm or an in, individual inventor will have taken prominence within that market environment. So um, that happens when the design and the company has established. So this is where we typically see a prominent large corporation evolve, such as um, Dyson, for instance. So to um, sum things up, um, I believe that IP has, is often seen as a sort of fixed formula. In my view, that's a mistake. But I think IP is something that is continually evolving and it matures and um, it diminishes in value over time unless complementary novelties are introduced and re-innovation takes place. The same way you innovate, that's the same way you should treat your IPs. You need to innovate within your IP strategy to actually take advantage of everything that you have invested or everything that you have created. The IP strategy is something that, that is very difficult to, um, to devise at the outset. So the IP strategy is something um, that an inventor will develop at a relatively early stage through insights in, 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 in relation to the market um, environment. How competitive is the market environment? How tightly controlled is it? Um, what are the competing um, technologies or design solutions? The important point is that a, a patent is not a surefire solution to, uh, to defending one's business. One is it can be challenged um, by competitors. It can be circumvented by um, competitors. It's not always the, the, the superior technology, for instance, that takes that succeeds in the market environment. So there are a lot of examples in the past um, where um, inferior design solutions have taken the market by the storm that can have to do with market control measures, strategic, strategic alliances with key industry stakeholders. So um, the different um, development aspects, they really need to be developed hand in hand. And I think one of the things that the book is trying to uh, promote and something that has been sort of um, considerably underestimated in the past is to develop an understanding of how the different um, development aspects um, do actually connect with each other. Or if you have a, a dominant market player, um, they can push, for instance, a inferior design solution and through marketing efforts and through strategic partnerships and edge a, an inventor out of um, market environment. And that is something that um, Thies discusses a little bit as to how an inventor, for instance, is positioned in relation to the other market stakeholders, the imitators, and the potential strategic partners who may forge alliances. If a prominent um, competitor has got an advantageous position in relation to other market stakeholders, such as suppliers and distributors, then IP can um, make a significant difference to the success prospects of an inventor. Yes, um, definitely. Which are the three business development periods and how they influence IP strategy and management? So, yeah, I mean, this was something that was almost quite unexpected um, observation. But basically, the incubator case studies within Design London, they were all businesses that were the age of which was ranging between three to 10 years. Um, so there wasn't enough 
um, historic um, evidence um, in order to um, assess the longitudinal impact of IP strategies and, and patents, for instance. So, and the other reason why I um, wanted to expand on the case studies was to make sure that um, potential bias that was created within the incubator um, could be critically reviewed. So I looked at um, a number of inventions that were nurtured outside of incubation environments, independent initiatives. Um, Rob Law's um, travel on um, ride on travel case is an example, as well as Amanda Hagelman's um, baby cup that doesn't spill. And um, these inventions date back to some of which date back to the 1980s or the 1990s. And, and so they were established inventions. And so I had much more a historic precedent in order to investigate what would be the long-term impact of filing a patent or not filing a patent that these studies led to is um, a as we've um, mentioned the there was no infringement to be observed in the early stages and the same applies actually to the to rob law's trunky travel case so rob law um, presented his travel case during a, a tv um, pitch i think it was in 2006 if i remember correctly and um, by then, um, there were no competing designs. He failed with the pitch, but succeeded with introducing the, the product to the UK markets. And a couple of years later, two or three years later, um, when the, scales, uh, the, the sales started growing, then a competing product entered the scene. And so that led to a long um, journey through the, um, through the different um, courts in the UK starting with the High Court through the Court of Appeal and um, ended in the Supreme Court. And um, unfortunately for um, Rob Law, um, the competing um, design was termed valid and not infringing. But um, the long story cut short is that um, there, the, the, the risk of infringement changes as a business matures. So that, um, we've identified three different phases, the early stage, where sales are infrequent and, um, and low in numbers. And once a, the, the, the sales start growing, this is what we term as the traditional phase. This is where a, a company, a startup starts to establish gradually, where the, this is the moment of the highest risk, so to speak. The company will still have limited uh, um, financial assets at their disposal. So if an infringer enters the scene, then capacity, the financial capacity to litigate infringement may be limited. In the case of both Mandy Haberman and Rob Law, both took a defensive stand and litigated. Haberman did so successfully, but she litigated patent infringement, whereas Rob Law litigated uh, the perceived infringement of a design right, and, and he failed in the Court of Appeal um, as well as in the um, Supreme Court which is the highest court. So that's the end of the line, so to speak. And so both products, um, the competing product um, to the Trunky travel case as well, Trunky itself, remained on the market, whereas um, Mandy Haberman could get the vast majority of competing products of her non-spilled baby cup drawn from the market and secured to a large degree exclusivity on the market. The interesting thing with Mandy Haberman's invention with this non-spill baby cup is that in the early stages, so in the early stage startup phase, she had cash flow issues. 
So she filed a patent in, in co collaboration with a, an attorney, but ran out of financial resources. So she delayed the filing of the patent by one year. And within that year, a competing technology was filed in the United States. She still succeeded with her patent to get that approved. But rather than um, a baby cup with a valve of any kind, she could only get protection for a slip valve, a kind of valve which has a cut across. Um, whereas there are other technologies that can create valve systems and they would be allowed. So there was a different um, product already introduced in the United States. And that really impacted adversely her market share because her patent wasn't as strong as it could have been. She followed through with the patent right away rather than waiting with the filing by a year. So these are the um, difficulties in the, in the early stages. What do you um, treat as secret and what do you share in terms of knowledge? Um, perhaps, whereas in the transitional phase, and this has to do a lot with market um, capture, increasing market share, and pursuing perhaps a um, dominant design paradigm or a dominant um, product language. And then finally, when the product or, and the company is established, then either the pursuit of continuity can be followed through, so um, gradually increasing um, sales with that market, and is to scale up a business and towards a multinational corporation. Um, so there's the possibility then to radically and, and aggressively grow a company through whatever Series B or a Series C investment in order to grow um, a company internationally. So that is the third phase of a business endeavor. And the modus operandi then changes yet again. So it has to do with um, the way in which teams are grown and which um, the role and the positioning of the company within that market environment changes significantly. And once you reach that establishment stage with stable sales, um, when um, the modus operandi um, changes in, in your favor as an entrepreneur. The ultimate advice for a design entrepreneur, if you can summarize all the knowledge that you have acquired throughout your career, uh, which will be the ultimate advice for a designer entrepreneur? Um, it would be threefold. And I'm, I'm really, I'm, there's a lot of knowledge out there, which is, which is really valuable. Um, but the three new proposition that I've carved out is one is that I would recommend strongly to establish clarity about how the different business development aspects correlate. Find out what are the dependencies between the different business development aspects and take strategic decisions accordingly. And in order to do so, one must really establish what are the driving factors. For example, is the funding strategy that which determines the capacity to invest in a patent portfolio? Or is it the patent filing that um, constitutes the prerequisite to raise investments? Um, so a lot of the um, less experienced um, design entrepreneurs I've spoken to were confused about this, but it really has to be one or the other. So what's, what, what's trigger, triggering um, the incentives? Um, what's the initial motivator that's important to establish in, in order to try to avoid um, ambiguity in the decision-making, really find out what are the determining factors in the first place. The second point is strongly recommend to build a business on a combination of inventive steps rather than on one individual one. 
So it is important that if there are different inventive steps, steps at play, that they are mutually complementary, because otherwise that would again lead to conflicting um, incentives. Um, so basically, all inventive steps should be aligned with a single-minded proposition um, that is being pursued and introduced to a market, um, a, a specific target market. If there are multiple inventive steps involved, um, then if one of those steps is challenged by a competitor, um, then the other in inventive achievements can be used as a fallback option. It is important to use a combination of different kinds of IP protection methods, including formal and informal IP, in order to harness these inventive steps. So obviously, if you have various inventive steps, you could apply secrecy to one of the steps. Let's say, for example, you have a platform, um, the algorithms are you know, protected through secrecy, um, then some visual aspects of the platform can be protected through design rights. Um, if the platform connects with whatever um, products that are driven uh, through the platform technology, then the products can be um, protected through patents, for instance. So you, you develop a system um, of different you know, inventive steps that are protected through a variety of um, forms of IP. The last point that I think really important is to treat the variety of development aspects in conjunction with a, with a design-led startup as an ever-evolving attribute of a business. So the time factor here plays a very important role. Market environments are increasingly dynamic and, and design entrepreneurs need to be able to um, respond dynamically to changes in the market environment. So that's, that's a lot discussed under the umbrella of dynamic capabilities. If the IP strategy takes the time factor into account, then it can significantly enhance the dynamic capabilities of a company. Yeah, that's about it um, in a nutshell. Thank you so much, Matthias. You can find Matthias' book on Amazon. And the title again is Intellectual Property, Design, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Any final words, Matthias? Before we close, <laughs> first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to commit to this interview. You've asked me earlier on about my background, and I'm a bit fearful that, you know, with all these advices, um, I might come across as a bit of an innovation management evangelist. Um, that isn't <laughs> in behind the book, but I hope that it, it inspires um, creative entrepreneurs and it, 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 it will come useful um, when it comes to um, harnessing their endeavors. And I wish everybody the best of success with their creative projects and opportunities and enjoy the book thank you very much and so we come to the end of our episode see you next tuesday with a new guest and a new ip topic goodbye from washington dc thank you for listening to intangiblia the podcast of intangible law Plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.